All right. Let's pause and pray. Lord, we know there's great peace to be had in these words, and so I pray and ask that you would uh, communicate that. That you would lead every heart in this room to a reality that experiences <clears throat> complete trust in you as Father. And we thank you for your word. Thank you for your abundant mercy and grace in which you desire to share it with us every day and feed us with it. And so we return all this praise and thanks to you. And Lord, we also bring confession that uh, we are those of little faith when we have no reason to be at times. And we may even misplace Trust in you for trust in something other than you. So we thank you for pardoning these iniquities, for being gracious to overcome them, and to love us um, as we move further away from them in your strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you may want to know that what I'm about to share was also shared a few years ago, either in the midst of COVID or right before COVID. On a Sunday evening, I took time to walk through what I call God's anxiety tool. Um, you can find that uh, message on uh, Roaring Glory's website. Under the blog, it's called God's Anxiety Tool, and I probably said it better than I'll say it this morning. So, uh, disclaimer, go listen to that if you don't get anything this morning. But I'm, I'm starting probably my favorite section of the Sermon on the Mount in verses 25 through 34, um, just because of what they have done for me. Uh, in my life. And so there's a, there's a really personal aspect here to these verses uh, that I'll try not to share too much of because it's not about me. But uh, you probably have had similar experiences or are having similar experiences in life um, that these verses speak to, especially in the context of this sermon. If Jesus is doing anything for his hearers, both those who know the law of God and those who don't, he is bringing a new perspective, or it shouldn't be a new perspective, but for most it surely is, on our focus here in this world on a kingdom that's not of this world that he is making sure to point out that all of life and all of our heart and all of our thoughts and all of our even uh, spiritual disciplines are to be directed and focused on God who reigns and rules 
in a kingdom that we have become citizens of through Jesus. And we live out that citizenship here and now. And so it should change everything about who we are. It should change everything about what we do. Certainly, he's already spoke to how it changes everything about how we pray, how we give, how we fast, and most importantly, how we focus. And today we're going to see that it changes everything about how we worry or how we are concerned about certain things. Anxiety, anxious. Now, anxiety can be just the, the body's natural response, fight or flight response to danger or to need. And it's, and it's certainly there to be a good thing or to alert you at times to what you should do in the face of danger or what you should do when you're in need. But what Jesus is talking about is not that. It's, it's misplaced uh, sinful anxiety, and I'll talk about why I use it that, that term in a minute. But it's a, it's a misplaced sinful worry or concern with something that the Lord has promised to take care of. It's a distrust in his promises by putting more of a trust in our abilities or presupposed abilities. And so I, I say God's anxiety tool when I talk about anxiety because I think we need to look at anxiety in that way. Um, to be used, to be used for our good. And of course, I've got to quote a Puritan and how they addressed anxiety at some point. But understand that this Greek word for anxious or anxiety is defined as a, a worry. A, a care of something else in place of what we should be worried and concerned about. Not <clears throat> worried in the sense that <clears throat> pardon me, that we um, are depending on ourselves to make something happen, happen or to provide something. But I guess more of a focus on where we invest those thoughts and those energies and that time. And understand the cultural context of this too as we get into this and who he's speaking to. When he speaks about, in these verses, about not being anxious about what you'll eat or drink or your clothing. He's speaking to people that you and I would say should be worried about stuff like that. They gather food for the day. They're not able to preserve the food in refrigerators and freezers like we were. They had certain methods, but not like us. And most of the time with most people, it's a daily gathering of food. And with clothes as well, it is hard in the ancient world to find a tunic that is not patched. One kind of seamless garment without holes or rips. And even to have more than one of those would be unique. So you, you see that when he is mentioning these things in first century Palestine, he's talking to a people who have more of a reason to be anxious about these things than we do. And yet, we can still fall into the same trap because we've spoke about this <clears throat> when we talked about um, laying up treasures in heaven. You can't serve God and money. One of those is supreme in your life. And it's whether you have too little or whether you have too much, 
you can still find the same kind of sinful concern for either what you don't have or what you have in keeping it or getting more. So I don't care if you're rich or poor. These things can cause you to misplace your concern or care or thoughtfulness and make these more supreme than that of the kingdom. And that's who he's talking to. He's talking to kingdom citizens. He's talking to his children who live here on earth to be ambassadors in his name, and surely after he leaves and imparts to them his spirit, imparts to us his spirit, and we become uh, a kind of a living gospel presentation and picture for him, ambassadors for Christ, there is the opportunity that we have to live behind enemy lines, so to speak, in this fallen world while we're awaiting the culmination or the fulfillment of the kingdom to be actualized and realized in the tangible realities, um, that we can live in this environment worry-free. Because even though this is a fallen world and this is not the actual tangible kingdom of heaven, he's the one who still reigns supreme and sovereign over all the universe, including this fallen world even at times when you don't think he is. He is. And the promises that he gives to his children are the fact that he will care for them in such a way that worry for uh, the concerns of this life can be removed from your mind and from your heart if you would just focus first on why you're here as a part of his kingdom coming on earth. And none of us will completely understand what it is to do that perfectly 100% of the time. That's, that's a reality for another place and another time. But we do grow more fearless in life, more Carefree may paint the wrong picture, but more uh, hopefully and confidently dependent on God to care for us as Father, the deeper our faith goes in Him. Or the more life that we live and the more that we experience how He has showed up for us. And even saying that is kind of silly because the reality is that He doesn't show up for us. The reality is what he, what he speaks in Matthew 28, that he never leaves or forsakes us. But that he continues on the path with his children, <clears throat> even as it's narrow and even as it's dangerous. Even as you feel a perceived need, he is already there to have met it. And you can confidently rely on that. Now, I'll give you another disclaimer here. He tells them not to worry what they'll eat or drink. <clears throat> that is not to say that we just take whatever food or drink is available. That's not to say that we don't have any concern for the things that we ingest and digest. Because certainly there is discussion later on about food sacrifice to idols and so on and so forth. And, and listen, you and I, in, in 2023 America, 
have, have different food options, so to speak, than they did. So this is not to say just do whatever to your body with food that you want to. That, that goes against what the Bible speaks about as being a good steward of the temple that houses the Holy Spirit within you. You're not called to throw caution to the wind, ever. You are called to first and foremost focus on the kingdom and let everything else fall in line. To not get so substantially obsessed with these things that they take the, uh, the, the prominent place in your life, or that's how people would define you. Well, they're constantly talking about nutrition, or they're constantly talking about clothing. That's why if any of you are familiar with social media, the term Christian influencer doesn't really make sense to me. The only thing that we as Christians are to influence the world in is the gospel. And to proclaim that. And to be about that. And certainly we have things to say about how you take care of your body with food and with clothing. But that doesn't occupy the prominent place in our thoughts, in our heart. So the command here of Jesus three times in these verses is to not be anxious, to not worry, to not be so supremely concerned with. And he says here in verse 25, do not be anxious about your life. What encompasses your life? What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So these are shocking, maybe even harsh words at the time to his hearers. And if you're honest, you read these and you're somewhat confused. How do I do that? Because all of us have this natural predisposition to self-preservation and to the preservation of others, even, hopefully. And so you do care about this. And again, we're not talking about simply caring. We're talking about occupying your, 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 the space in your heart and mind with the time that you have on these things that God promises to take care of. And it goes so far as even your, your life in general. All that encompasses your life. You can't add, in fact, if you get into the real specifics of the Greek here in verse 27, you can't add another step to the one that you're determined to take by the sovereignty of God. You can't do it. You can't add any length, physically or internally. Psalm 139.16 Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So what is that to say? That's to say, he's got your days taken care of. He's got it mapped out. He knows when it's time to go home. 
He knows how long you're going to stay. And he has a purpose for all of those days and all of those hours. And you can't affect that. Could you take away from that? Possibly. But those would still be days that the Lord knows. So the question becomes, how do we do this? Jesus is asking us to do this, especially these hearers in his present day, to to not worry about those things that they have to deal with every day. And he gives that, that nature example, right, of the birds in the air. They're not, they're not farming, so to speak. They're not planting. They're not harvesting. They're not storing that which they harvested, but they're fed. You know, I even think of several of you have been to your homes and you have these awesome bird feeders. Some of you even have cameras on them. And, and so think about that. Think about the extravagant way that the Lord is using you to feed his birds. It's beautiful, isn't it? The care that he is showing for them. You've got roofs over where they can park themselves and eat. I mean, it's, it's amazing. He, they, they don't freak out every day that they don't know if the bird feeder is going to be full or not. They don't freak out every day if it's not there. They still go out. They still look. But it's the Lord who's going to feed them, and they're not worried about it. There's a, there's a, a famous poem, and it's been accredited to several people, so I'll just say it's by somebody. And I've, and I've said it a lot here, but I'll say it again. It goes like this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should surely like to know why these human beings rush about and worry so. And said the sparrow to the robin, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. You see, we are those creatures that are freaking out. We're those creatures that are rushing around, wondering you know, where we're going to eat supper or what we're going to make for supper. We're, you know, we're, we're wondering what we're going to wear this fall and this winter. We're occupying ourselves with that. But when life gets put into perspective, so do those things. And the more you understand the Lord and his agenda with our time on this earth, the more you understand that that stuff is small potatoes to what you should be focused on. He'll take care of that. He'll lead you to that. He'll put that in front of you. It's not to say that you're not going to work and make money. It's not to say that you're not going to go to the grocery store and shop. It's not going to say that you're going to go to the clothing store to get a coat that you need. It's just to say that it will be there when you need it. And, and we have the ability to do the things that the birds can't do. And the, the whole point of that illustration there is just to say, like, look, you are of more value than them. So if he is doing that in the way that he's doing that for them, what is he going to do for you? And that's going to be the kind of the theme of these verses is if he's going to if he's going to clothe the grass of the field and the and the lilies of the field, if he's going to feed the birds like he does, then what is he going to do for those that are created in his image? He's going to leave you cold and naked and hungry? And you say, well, 
Sometimes there are people cold and naked and hungry. And what does he do in those instances? He identifies himself, Jesus does, with those people and says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. So the Lord will get them care and illustrate his care in the midst of it, or the, or the Lord will ultimately hold all his people in his hands. So even if exposure or hunger would take you from this world, it is not taking you from the hand of the Father. To eternally feed you, to eternally clothe you with garments that you could never clothe yourself with. And to feed you with food that you could never feed yourself with. To provide that by his benevolent grace for all eternity. Apart from your help, apart from your gifting, all due to his loving kindness. So to not be sinfully anxious is to be wholly dependent on God by knowing he is a good father. By trusting he's a good father. For all the good fathers and mothers in the room, your children currently or in the past probably didn't worry about the fact that you would feed them. They might have worried about if it would taste good or not or if it would be well cooked, but they weren't worried about the fact that you would feed them. So the examples in the Bible are, look, this is what you do for your children. Is God not infinitely more of a good father than you are? You and I both could, could sit in this room for hours on end and speak about how he has just lavishly provided for our needs. We could. Every, everybody in this room could. Then acknowledge the goodness that he has given us as a father. And that is where you begin to solve your anxiety problem or your misplaced concern is by, again, looking first at him and understanding him, especially in relation to you, who doesn't deserve him. And another place we can see this in action is in, in Luke 10, 38 through 42. You have an illustration here of this kind of played out in the lives of Mary and Martha. They're friends of Jesus, right? The sisters of Lazarus and Jesus enters their village. Luke 10, 38, they went on their way. Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Okay, pause there. Martha's distracted with a good thing, serving. Serving the Lord Jesus. In fact, it was her who welcomed her, him into the home. Come in, Jesus. And as, as Jesus came in, she's now distracted from who she welcomed into her home by the things that she thinks she needs to do at that present moment for him. Jesus said he came to serve, not to be served. That was what he was doing with his present time on earth. 
So he's come into her home, and she is literally pulled away by this good thing. Jesus is in her home, and she's pulled away by what she thinks she needs to do. So she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion, or Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You see what he said? He said, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing you need or one thing you're lacking or one thing is necessary, and Mary chose it. Jesus was in their presence. They were able to sit at his feet and to listen to the words of God flow out of his mouth with every single syllable. And Martha's pulled away by what she thinks she needs to do to provide for him. Losing perspective on the fact that he provides for us. And in that moment in her living room, he is there to pour out the abundance of his riches in the words that he is to speak and the love that he is to share. You see what you miss out on? When you try and take the place of God in the concern for your needs, he's father. You're not. Focus on listening to him, on seeking him, back in Matthew 6, verse 33, that's the, that's the whole thing that's going to wrap this all up. You're going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. So what happens when you do find yourself like Martha, pulled away from the Lord by even good things? to where you don't take the time to listen to him, to where you don't take the time to uh, have your faith deepened in trust and dependence on him so that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is yours in his name? What are you going to do when this comes to you? Because it will come to you. The Bible is very aware of the human condition and the things that we face here on this earth, and anxiety will be a part of your human experience. I don't care who you are. At some point in time, it will be upon you in a sinful way. And the Puritan John Flavel, I, don't, I can't give you the exact word-for-word -word quote here, but I'll summarize what he said. He said, anxiety is useful in so much as it directs you to prayer. That's why I call it God's anxiety tool. Because he will use all things uh, and work them together for good. What's that include? Stuff like this. So when you are able to recognize anxiety, misplaced concern with the things that God has promised to do for you, use it as an opportunity to drive you to prayer. If you don't, then it is... Just purely sinful. Purely 
illustrates a little faith or a lacking faith. Now, I'm not a doctor. I don't know all the chemical imbalances that happen in the human body and uh, the environmental aspects of things that happen, especially from childhood on up, that, that, that cause certain states of psychosis or whatever crazy words you want to use to explain the human body and how it works. But as far as you are a spiritual being, anxiety can be sinful, but it also can be a tool that you can use to overcome what is driving you away from the Lord. So that was the turning point in my life with anxiety. Was, was not that God removed it, but that like Paul, that thorn in the flesh was used to remind me of my weakness and draw me again into dependence on my Father who cares for me. And, and, it, and it calls your faith into question. When it comes up, you, you're, you're, you're asked, do you know that your Father cares for you? And how are you going to answer that? And how you answer that will depend on how your anxiety goes or what it does for you. But we don't really like to treat anxiety like that, do we? We don't like to treat these thorns in the flesh as... These, these messengers of Satan, if you will, Paul's words to be used for good. That's why you have to have a theology or a biblical understanding of how God sovereignly rules and reigns over all things. All things. That's not a, a cute term that we use in some Christianese sense to speak about only certain things. We say that, the Bible says that because it means that. All things. So will you, will you let him do that with your anxiety? You may have cancer. You may have financial problems. You may have other health problems. You may have relationship problems. You may have things that, that, that cause you all sorts of anxiety or fear. But what are you supposed to do with that? Well, Philippians 4 is kind of the answer. Not kind of, it is the answer. Philippians 4, starting in verse 6. Here's Paul writing to close out his letter to the Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything. Again, you see that word, anything? That's what it means. But in everything, by prayer, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus also tells us, that, or James tells us, that we can't pray like a double-minded person and tossed to and fro by our unbelief. But when you pray, do you actually recognize who you're praying to? I mean, this goes all the way back to the beginning of, of chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Who are we talking to? Do you know him? Do you understand how he is a good father? Like the very specifics of how he presses in to you, a sinner, undeserving of his love, and yet he gives it anyway. And not only that, but he even provides for you daily the things that you need. And not only that, but he has promised to provide for you eternally. 
with the things you don't deserve. So you have to begin when you pray like that in light of Philippians 4 by understanding who the Father is. And Jesus is making him manifest in the world. He is literally displaying him with every step he takes and with every breath he takes to everybody. And the biblical writers are recording that so that we know who the Father is and how much we can trust him. So that we can pray like this. So that anxiety, when it creeps up, can be that, that reminder like we set on our phones to say, oh, time to pray. Time to pray about this. I lost my keys, and if I don't have my keys, then I'm going to have to go to the dealership or somewhere online and try and find keys for my car and get a program for my car. Pray about it. Sounds silly, right? Why would I pray about lost keys? My wife taught me that when we lost a tire one time. She said, did you pray about it? I said, well, no. Why don't you start there? What are you anxious about? Pray. Another remedy for anxiety is really putting our, what we fear in order. We are prone to fear what we see and what we know in front of us. But that's not how the Bible says to fear. couple chapters later in Matthew 10. Matthew 10 verses 28 through 31. Jesus instructs us to have no fear. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body, both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Our fear, what Proverbs calls the beginning of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. And then you have discussions in, you know, 1 John where perfect love casts out fear. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to understand Him. As you understand God, you understand His power. You understand His sovereignty. You understand your place in relation to that. And that you only exist because He's chosen to exercise grace and mercy to you. But you healthily and rightly understand that he's the one who can do the ultimate terror to you. He is the great terror of the universe. If you read James again, you'll see that the demons shudder when they hear his name or his voice. They're terrified. When Jesus enters into the... To the uh, uh, presence of those that are demon-possessed, what happens? They just start lashing out. And they ask him for mercy, don't they? 
They ask him what, he's, what he has to do with them before the time. They know what he's going to do with them. And the fact that he showed up now is terrifying to them. You have to place your fear rightly. Even to the point that you don't have to fear other men. Because the fear of man will lead you into all sorts of ungodliness. All sorts of sin. All sorts of people pleasing. All sorts of disobedience to God. You'll be a yes man to the wrong people when you're only supposed to be obedient to God. Because it's him only that you should fear. And when we're talking about life, I mean, he holds eternal life, our souls in his hand, even the days that he's already numbered. And we're worried about what, what man is going to do with our days? No, that's wrong. In fact, if you, if you just meditate on verse 27, you have to understand that you cannot add to what he's already determined. So if he's determined it, then you have to live a life like Paul that goes where he, the, the Lord says to go and does what the Lord says to do and says what the Lord says to say, even when he's in front of Caesar and powerful people because he understands who he is to fear. It's not them. They're not the one that are going to be in charge of his days and his hours. So you have the opportunity, Christian, to live fearless before men. They cannot do anything to you apart from God's ordained plan for you. This is what leads missionaries to be fearless and go in places where nobody should go. Really. This is what leads us to be able to love people without fear of people. Because we place our fears in order. To fear God first and foremost. And to fear God, I would argue, is to be loved by God. And to be loved by God is to be known to be cared for by God. And if he's caring for you, then what is there to worry about? So he has released us from the burdens of life. You're going to still feel them. That's just part of the human experience. But you are actually released from carrying those burdens, right? Because Jesus says, what? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he says again in 1 Peter, cast all your burdens on him. Well, that doesn't seem responsible. I'm supposed to worry about all this. No, you are supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You are to make that your main concern. There'll be time to figure out what dinner is. There'll be time to figure out what you're putting on today. But the preoccupation throughout this whole sermon in Matthew 5 through 7 is to live differently. Another example of this is Jesus. 
when his disciples are trying to get him something to eat and he tells them he has food they don't know about. And so then their anxiety goes to, where, where, where do you get this food? Like, where is it? I, how, do we, how do we feed him? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In fact, you go back even to, to um, Exodus and, and Numbers, and you find Israel in the wilderness, and why are they fed the way that they're fed by the Lord in the wilderness? Well, Jesus even quotes this in Deuteronomy, that they are taught by God feeding them daily and not being able to carry any over for the next day, but having to depend on the fact that it'll be there for the next day by God providing it for them, that they don't live on bread alone, but they live by every word of God. So how do you put this into play? You're not worried about what food is going to be good or bad in your refrigerator tomorrow, but you wake up worrying, or not worrying, being concerned about what the Lord has to say to you that day. Then instead we wake up and we say, man, it's late, I got to get going, and I got to get this, and I got to drop them off, and I got to pick that up, and I don't know if I'm going to have enough money to pay for that, that's going to, might come up today, and I don't, we have all these things. And where was the concern when the day began for what the Lord has to say? So if you struggle with anxiety, um, good. Let it be a tool. Let it be a tool. And it can only be a tool if you come to know God as Father. So again, I can reiterate what we're about here. Seeing you see him. The clearer you see him, the less anxious you'll be. The clearer you understand the spiritual realities that surround us even now, the more fearless you will be. And is that not a powerful thing in the hands of God? A child who's completely, confidently depending on him? In Acts 19, I'll end with that. Who, who, who do who those demons know in Acts 19? They know Jesus, and they've heard of Paul. Why do you think they heard of Paul? Because Paul lived this way. And we have his example. Because he's imitating Christ. And we're called to imitate those who imitate Christ. So if you want to know how to deal with anxiety, just read your Bible, look at Jesus, look at Paul, looking at Jesus, and you'll be okay. But most importantly, let it be a tool that drives you to prayer. So spend a few moments in prayer with your Father, and then we'll stand and sing together.